According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians. We're looking at Philippians 4 this morning. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. A couple of women in the church that couldn't get along, and so Paul is writing to the church and calling them out by name. Their names are Yodia and Syneche. And I've noticed those names are not popular. That uh, when, uh, you know, you have uh, pregnant women and they're considering maybe, in fact, they might have a girl coming up. And what names maybe do you have in mind? Are Yodia and Syneche on a short list for names? They're, they don't, not often, I don't think. Uh, and yet, they're heroes. These are sisters that have um, paid a price for their faith. They have uh, served with the Apostle Paul in, in a number of different places and a number of different ways. And so to, uh, you know, to hang them with this rap as, uh, as, as problem sisters is uh, unfair. <laughs> we, we have to recognize that. Uh, because all the expectation is, is in the, on the follow-up to this uh, exhortation, that they are going to respond, that they have the faith to respond, that they have the love for the Lord to respond. And receiving a, a word like this from the Apostle Paul, plus the help they're going to get from a true comrade, and we'll talk about him, and uh, the memory of Clement, that uh, the memory of Clement will be such that it will be motivational for them to uh, to repent of what needs to be repent, to have the change of thinking necessary in order to, uh, to advance in the Christian walk. All right, before we do get started this morning, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth and rejoicing, Father, over the blessings of your word. I thank you for a Bible that describes our Christian walk in uh, in very real ways, ways that we relate to and understand. Not uh, This is not simply a book that was written 2,000 years ago, but it's alive and powerful, Father. It's, it's uh, sharp and it pierces where it needs to pierce. So uh, convict us through the teaching this morning as we evaluate ourselves in uh, in. Yodian Syneche terminology and uh, open our eyes to see why it is that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we are in the midst here of, uh, really, we're going to handle verses 1 through 9 as a unit. We're going to break down the chapter into four parts, and uh, 1 through 9 is the first, uh, I'm sorry, three parts. 1 through 9 is where we currently are, then we'll move on to 10 through 19, then we'll wrap up the book study with uh, the doxology of 20 through 23. And so we'll handle this chapter really in three segments. Uh, But we begin with the practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt. Chapter 3 presented rapture doctrine, and uh, rapture doctrine is critical not just to know uh, it's not esoteric knowledge that you, you study the rapture and you say, okay, well, that's good to know. But it becomes motivational that knowing it means we live it, means we live day by day with that earnest expectation, fervently waiting for the Lord to return, fervently waiting to hear that trumpet sound. And so really it becomes the basis for the stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In chapter 4 and verse 1, we have a therefore and an in this way. And those two things get linked together, therefore in this way. 
And if we, if we lose sight of rapture doctrine, we're going to really have a hard time standing firm. But rapture doctrine encourages us to stand firm. And so really in giving a title of these first nine verses, verses one through nine of Philippians chapter four, I've simply titled it Rapture Reflections and Response. That we reflect upon the rapture doctrine and then we respond to the concept of imminency with an urgency in our Christian walk. That we fervently love one another, that we stand firm in the Lord, that we treat one another as joy and crown kindred. Right? Remember that acronym? J-A-C-K. Joy and crown kindred that we talked about. In fact, I even have a slide for that. I think. There it is. Joy and crown kindred. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Do we consider one another as our joy? Do we consider one another as our crown? We're supposed to because we are kindred. We are brethren, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so if the Jack acronym can help, then uh, it's, it helps you, you know, fix it in your mind that we are joy and crown kindred one to another in any event. It becomes motivational for how we walk. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Then we get to verse 2, and we have an urging uh, to, uh, for these women to reconcile. Two women in Philippi are urged to reconcile, and they need help doing so. They need help doing so. The urging won't be sufficient. He doesn't stop it with, I urge you, I urge you. But then he calls upon a true companion. He calls upon, and that might also be a proper name, uh, he calls upon a true companion to help them. That with his help, they're going to they're going to respond to the exhortation. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. That is a, that is a wonderful testimony that's being offered there on behalf of those two women. That they are his fellow athletes. Soon, athleto is the term, and we'll break that down here this morning. But the fact that he names these women and he doesn't even address them. It's not in the vocative of address. It's not in the second person. It's in the third person because they are a part of a flock that are going to be sitting there in church on a Sunday morning when this scroll gets read. And uh, they're going to hear their names uh, read from a book of the Bible that they're receiving now. How powerful does that become? You know, and it's curious to me how um, the man of incest from, uh, from 1 Corinthians, what was his name again? We don't know his name. That's right. And then he's restored to the church in 2 Corinthians. And then what was his name again? We still don't know his name. Even after he repented, we never learn his name. And uh, so it's remarkable to me that he calls out Iodi and Syneche by name. And, uh, and to me, that's clearly, I mean, of course, everything he writes is by the leading of the Holy Spirit to be inspired in the canon of Scripture. But the idea that he's going to call out these women by name is extraordinary. That has a full anticipation that they will respond, they will repent, things are going to be fine moving forward, even if they're rocky right now. And so when we get to heaven and we meet Yodia and Seneki, uh, think about it. We know this story, and we're going to have all eternity with them. And that's, uh, to me, that's interesting. All right. These, um, who were these women? We don't know. We don't know. This is the only place where they're mentioned. We can glean certain hints by the fact that when the Philippian church was founded, women had a prominent role. Women had a prominent role when this church was founded. And so let's turn over to Acts chapter 16. And we looked at this on Wednesday. I don't mind looking at it again a second time. Acts chapter 16, so that we can see this. Because there's several things that are actually going on here. This is uh, the first stop in Europe. 
This is the first stop with uh, where actually they were allowed to say anything because they picked up Timothy in the first part of chapter 16. Uh, Timothy gets added to the traveling team here and then they have closed door after closed door after closed door. And I imagine Timothy's, you know, looking around wondering, why did I join this gig? Why did I, why did I join this? Because they haven't done anything. He's traveled place to place to place and all the doors keep getting shut. And so uh, we see this here. And so uh, basically you have Timothy picked up here in verses 1 through 5. And then uh, in verse 6 we're told they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, now later they'll go to Asia. Later they'll set up a headquarters in Ephesus. And they're going to stay in Asia for three years, more than three years. Uh, Just at this time it's too soon. He can't get to Asia yet and God knows why. All right. So the door is closed. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So another door is closed. If all these doors keep closing, don't grumble about it. Thank God for it. Thank God that He's shutting the doors to keep you out of trouble, to keep you from going places you don't need to be. And uh, just stay faithful and He'll take you where you need to be. And so uh, passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And this basically is the edge of the world. It's the edge of the continent. They're the far western extremity of, today we call it Turkey, but they're the far uh, extremity of Asia Minor. And there's nowhere to go except on a boat and cross over into Europe. And that's exactly what happens next. And so a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man, I I laugh every time I read this, a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And it's a little bit hilarious because it's a man in the vision. When they get there, it's a woman. (laughs) All right. So even when you think you know what you're doing and you think you have the direct leading of the Lord and it seems clear, this is the will of God. I had a vision. I'm going here. And then you get there and there's surprises. You know, it wasn't what you expected. And and that's all right because God's still in charge and we, we walk by faith and it's a beautiful thing. And so they saw the vision. Immediately we, and, and we pay attention to the we portions when they show up in the book of Acts. And so the we uh, portion shows up here. And uh, so they go to, uh, to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. And so when they get to Philippi, we pay attention. And in these verses, verse 13, 14 and 15, 16 through 18 and 40, it's all in a Philippi context and it all involves women women were prominent in the founding of the church. And so starting in verse, uh, well, let's see here, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, which was the port city. Philippi was not on the coast, but Neapolis served as the port for uh, Philippi. And so from there up to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. The significance, of course, we've mentioned several times of why being a Roman colony sets it apart from any place else in Macedonia, certainly from from Thessalonica or Berea or Athens or Corinth or any of these other Greek places. They may be on Macedonian soil, but they are Roman citizens. This is a Roman colony, and that uh, becomes significant. And so on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. Typically when Paul hit town, his first stop would be the synagogue. And he'd show up at the synagogue on on Saturday. However, Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. And so they just presume, they get this idea somehow. I think it's the leading of the Holy Spirit. I bet you down by that river there's going to be a place of prayer. And that's exactly what they find. 
And uh, we uh, they sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled, all right? The women who had assembled. This morning we were all men, I noticed in our prayer meeting. That's unusual. That's unusual. Typically women outdo men in terms of prayer, just not today. <laughs> all right. And then a woman named Lydia, and all kinds of speculation that that's not really her name, but the Bible says that's her name, so I'm going to go with that. A woman named Lydia. Yes, there's a place also known as Lydia, but this is a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. By the way, Thyatira is not in Lydia, so all these scholars and all their supposing, I think, is a waste of time. Um, She's from Thyatira. Her name is Lydia. And that's what we deal with. A seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. Notice, a worshiper of God. And this is pretty common uh, in describing Gentiles that uh, they have an exposure to who the creator God of the universe is. Typically from an Old Testament standpoint, from the Hebrew scriptures, they have a frame of reference for the creator God. And she is a worshiper of God. She's listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So God does this and he motivates a believer to respond to the teaching. And so when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. So she prevailed upon us. Now we don't know, there's no mention of a husband here. There's a mention of a household, which could include a husband, uh, often does, could include whatever, servants, children, um, and so forth. We don't have those kind of details. The only one that's named is Lydia, and it's her house. Come into my house, which still could include a husband. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have a husband. Um, but this sparks so much um, of the legends that uh, that come about, particularly with Yodia and Seneki, because we don't know who they are, and uh, all the attempts to link one of them with Lydia or Lydia's husband. All right. And so women are involved. And then the conflict with this slave girl, um, another female. And then what happens to her after the demon gets cast out? We don't know. Does she get saved after that? Um, But this uh, demoniac girl, a slave girl. So verse 16, it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who is bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. So she's a girl, the masters are men. And um, anyway, so Paul gets kind of irritated by the the noise. We're told in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of that very moment. And I don't know, I, I got more questions than answers really in preaching this chapter. I don't know why it took Paul so long to cast out the demon. Uh, why, you know, did he not cast out the demon on day one, uh, as it were? But evidently for many days it just started annoying him. Paul was greatly annoyed. And so this is, um, this is, I guess, the fruit of annoyance. I don't know what you call this. Um, but as soon as she's healed, as soon as the demon's gone, then all of her capacity to make these men money was, uh, was over and done with. And so uh, that causes trouble. So her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, so they seized Paul and Silas, and this is how they end up spending a night in jail. 
Really the last reference then when they get out of jail uh, is they get released at the end of the chapter and Lydia is mentioned one final time down in verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia and when they saw the brethren they encouraged them and departed. All right. so anyway women were prominent in the founding of this church and uh, we, we can I think safely assume that Yodia and Syneche were a part of that. Okay. Um, it's a safe assumption, I guess, based upon the description we have in Philippians 4, that they had a background of ministry with the Apostle Paul. We assume that was in Philippi. It may not have been. Uh, if their past background with Paul was elsewhere, I think he might have mentioned that. Uh, the fact that they're in, in uh, Philippi now, at the time that he's writing Philippians, uh, and everything else gets left unexplained, I think uh, is natural. the natural reading then has them, uh, has them in service there. So let me get back to Philippians 4. I mean, it seems to me when we see their fellow service, in verse 3 it says, these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, in the gospel, they have shared my struggle in the gospel, we call this, uh, you know, gospel athletics, <laughs> okay? And they were partners in that, together with Clement also, whoever he was, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And I think that's significant, not just the fact that they're saved, but likely departed, that, that they uh, are no longer living, that they shared the struggle to the, to the point of death, if in fact we can infer that from the reference here, whose names are in the book of life. So there's a background for these women. Women were prominent in the founding of this church, but now two particular women could potentially tear it apart with their different attitudes. The command to live in harmony is a command to have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, to think this way, the imperative we have from chapter 2. All right, so uh, starting with Iodia, beautiful name. Uh, in fact, uh, I've never met a Yodi in my life, but someday perhaps maybe I will. And uh, this is a name that uh, could be given in lieu of Hadas, for example. Um, I have, t- you know, from John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There are three feminine nouns in that verse, and I've named my daughter after two of two daughters after two of those nouns, because I have truth and life. I have Alethea and I have Zoe. The one name that I don't have, and we're not likely to have another daughter at this point, but um, the daughter we never had was named, could have been named Hadas from John 14, 6, but Sharon and I agree, and we all can agree, Hadas, H-O-D-O-S, would be an awful, awful name to give to a poor little girl. Well, here is a, maybe a more feminine, more, it's a compound, because the O-D-I-A, the Odia, uh, in, in Yodia, uh, comes from the Hadas root. So it would be a, a cognate noun and a feminine noun, and it means success. And uh, the verb yuadao uh, means to succeed or to prosper. And it means, you know, good journey, good road. And uh, we use the same thing when we say farewell. You know, it's, it's the idea that as you go, you're going to do well, uh, you know, leaving here and wherever God takes you. It's, uh, it's just an idiomatic expression. Uh, like when we say goodbye, God be with ye, uh, you know, we pretty much lose the, the meaning of what these original um, departure messages were about. But Yodia means success, and this is the only place it shows up. 
And so this is the only verse we have any clue about Yodia herself and who she was and what she was doing. Uh, the to succeed or to prosper we have four times in Romans 1.10, 1 Corinthians 16.2, and 3 John 2. We looked at those on Wednesday, I won't repeat them, but I will highlight for you that in 3 John um, there's a ratio, there's a proportion that's mentioned with respect to your success, with respect to your health. As it says, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. And really those are kind of the two dominant prayer items in any prayer meeting uh, with respect to uh, health or employment or, or uh, different things that we pray for. But then it goes on to say that you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Just as your soul prospers. And to me that's powerful. That's a whole month of sermons right there in, in soul prosperity, soul health, and uh, taking your, your earthly prosperity and your physical health and putting them on a ratio in, uh, in, uh, in parallel, in tandem with your soul prosperity. That's, uh, that says a lot right there. Anyway, we'll let that go for this morning. Iodia means success, and I'm sure she uh, brought success to these ministries that she was a part of. And then Syneche. Syneche means lucky, and uh, Tyche was a goddess of luck, and uh, soon the prefix, here is somebody that is with luck. Um, And uh, like the name Tychicus, the name Eutychus, the name Fortunatus, those are male names, those are masculine names that uh, would be mostly related to Syneche. Uh, and we know those very well from the New Testament. I won't go back over these either. But Tychicus was one of Paul's trusted uh, traveling companions. A marvelous example of the gift of server minister. Tychicus was dedicated to his service to the Apostle Paul. So he traveled where he needed to travel to carry letters here and there. He carried Colossians and Philemon and, uh, and Ephesians. He was a courier. He was a messenger saving Paul the, the trouble of, of traveling places and taking his word there. Uh, Eutychus, the young man that fell out of the window when Paul was preaching too late at night uh, and then got resurrected, got re- resuscitated uh, on that occasion. Eutychus uh, is, is actually very close to, uh, has the EU prefix like Yodia has and then the, the Tyche suffix like, uh, like Syneche. And then Fortunatus, that's not Greek, it's Latin, but it's the Latin equivalent uh, because Fortune is the goddess, the Roman goddess uh, would be the equivalent of the Greek goddess there. So all these names mean lucky. And uh, what can we say about success and lucky? That's all we can say about success and lucky. That's the names they were given. And uh, a lot of names are given uh, in the wishful thinking of parents that hope that someday, you know, our daughter will have success or our daughter will be lucky as, uh, as it will. Tons of legends based upon this. So many, um, you know, people have attempted to identify uh, based on other etymology, the, the fortune-telling girl, uh, the idea of fortune with luck. They were trying to link that demoniac girl with Syneche just on the basis of bringing her master's fortune. Uh, just all senseless in my mind. The real deal, though, is the imperative to live in harmony. When he says, I urge Iota and I urge Syneche, notice he uses the verb twice. Both of them get urged. He doesn't combine it into a single urging. The urging is the verb parakaleo, I beseech, I exhort, I, I urge. It's not a command, it's an urging, and that's significant. But he says, I urge Iodia, and I also urge Syneche. He's give, each one gets their own urging. 
He doesn't lump them together and say, you know, I urge Yodi and Sinike, those two women. He gives each one a separate urging. So he's holding each one accountable. Live in harmony is a, is a, a term here that we've seen again and again and again. It's a thinking word, phroneo, to think. It's one of our several phroneo usages throughout the book of Philippians, from chapter four to cha- I'm sorry, chapter one to chapter two to chapter three to chapter four. And guess what? That's every chapter of this book. <laughs> okay, every single chapter has a phroneo usage or more. Uh, you know, except for chapter one, they all have at least two phroneo usages. It's the word to think, to have an attitude, to not just think something through, but to think through in such a way that you have an ongoing attitude. So you say, this is now my thinking. This is now my mind. Okay? And so um, that's what we deal with. And that's the imperative from Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. That means think this way. Have this thinking in yourself that Jesus also had in himself. Remember that? That's the kenosis chapter, whereby he laid aside his privileges. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think this way. Think the same way. So when it says ta auta franin, ta auta, that's the same. That's the same thing. Think the same thing. So he urges each one of these women to think the same thing. And that's the mind of Christ. We also have the in the Lord usage that we've been harping on again and again and again. We had it in uh, verse 1, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Those words in the Lord are not throwaway terms. Those words in the Lord mean that I'm occupied with Christ, I've got my eyes fixed firmly on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. And so keeping my eyes on the Lord, thinking the Lord's thinking, that's going to allow Yodia and Seneki to have like-mindedness. It's going to allow them to have harmony and to live in harmony. So that's the key there. It's a thinking term. Think the, the way Christ thought. You know, the more I think like Christ, the more you think like Christ. Isn't it amazing how we think alike? <laughs> Isn't it amazing how we get along and and some uh, you know personality quirks can be you know blown off and and uh, set aside. They don't really matter, do they? If I'm thinking like Christ and you're thinking like Christ, that's the uh, that's the whole secret. It's like it was the plan or something, and God designed it this way. Our fellowship is with a Father and with His Son. So just hold your finger here. If you if you need a, another example of this, I, I like to go to First John, and you get another example of this. First John is the book of fellowship. And uh, we talk about having fellowship one with another, but really our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And so um, we see this in 1 John verse 3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may, may have fellowship with us. So how do we have fellowship? How do we hold things in common? How do we get along? Because I mean really People are people, and personalities are personalities, and sometimes they don't mesh. Sometimes they, there's friction. Well, you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So if you have fellowship, fellowship with the Father and the Son, and I have fellowship with the Father and the Son, we're able to have fellowship with one another how? So long as we are fellowshipping with the Father and with the Son. We're talking doctrine. We're talking scripture. Okay? 
And it's, it's, it's quicker than anything when it's done biblically. <laughs> when we're celebrating the Word of God, we're talking about passages of Scripture, we're talking about doctrines or promises or principles or aspects of, of Jesus. I mean, it's marvelous. You can, you can come face to face with a total stranger within 10 minutes, you can be the best of friends because you start talking doctrine. And you find out, wow, this is a brother that really knows his Bible. Wow. You know, what, 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 uh, what, what passage was your pastor preaching last Sunday? Let's talk about it. And we find a, a like-mindedness there. Abandon that and we're back to personalities again. <laughs> you want to talk sports and we find out, oh, wait a minute, I don't like your team. Your team beat my team. Now all of a sudden we've got friction instead of harmony. But in the Lord is harmony. And that's, uh, that's the way it works. In the Lord, in the Lord... Okay, speaks to our occupation with Christ and personal submission to His will. Whatever their disagreement was, each of them is exhorted because neither of them had this attitude. Again, back in chapter 2, he said, have this attitude. And in chapter 3, he said, as many of us as are perfect. He couldn't include the two of them. They were not in that list. He said, if any of you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that to you. And this is what's happening here in chapter 4. If any of them, specifically these two, and God is showing it to them. The Holy Spirit's putting it in the Bible. It's being demonstrated right here in this letter being read to them. So whatever their disagreement was, who knows? You know, we want to sit here for the next half hour, we could throw out ideas. I'll give you my ideas, you give me your ideas, and they're no better or worse than anybody else's ideas. It's just useless uh, speculation at this point. But given the fact that they were women, we might speculate that, uh, no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm sure it was something, if it was two men, we can imagine they were probably fighting over a woman, right? Or who, who knows? All right, let, let that go. The fact is, they had different attitudes. The problem is there's a different spirit at work. It's not the Holy Spirit. All right. So if there's a different attitude, what does that make it? It makes it wrong. It makes it sin. It makes it falling short of the glory of God and missing the mark. Again, I would highlight Philippians 3.15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, being perfected in this Christian walk, have this attitude. They don't have it. He's telling them to get it. Think the same thing. And if in anything you have a different attitude, if it's not the mind of Christ, it's wrong. That's the point. Our world misses that. Our culture tries to gloss over it. They paint it with, with expressions like alternative. It's just an alternative lifestyle. No, it's wrong. It's unbiblical. So if in anything you have a different attitude... God will reveal that also to you. So the language of different thinking in verse 15 and the language of same thinking in chapter 4 and verse 2, that's the contrast. And that's what we're highlighting here. The phreneo is either hetero or or, uh, autos. And if it's autos, it's the same. If it's hetero, it's different. And this is a place where hetero is bad. (laughs) Hetero thinking. No, no, we're to have Christ thinking. Christ thinking. And that's the issue here. All right, then we move on to true companion. And I think true companion, whoever he was, he's not named. And why leave this guy anonymous if you're going to call out Yodi and Syneke? That makes no sense to me. So I think this is the name Syzygos. 
that uh, rather than take uh, companion as a noun, take syzygos as a proper name. And uh, so instead of translating syzygos as companion, just put a capital letter on it and, and call the person by his name. Uh, the truly named Sysagos. Either that or he's unknown and unnamed. Okay? True companion is either an unknown that is unknown to us, the Philippians knew who he was. <laughs> okay? Iodi and Syneke knew who he was. He's either unknown to us or unnamed. I'm sure he had a name. He just wasn't named in this epistle. Uh, possibly an unknown and unnamed man of wisdom. Or quite likely to be a personal name that is the truly named Sysagos, and that's how I understand it. And I'm going to go to heaven thinking that uh, I look forward to meeting Sysagos someday. Um, the point being, though, is that somebody, every flock needs a Sysagos. Every flock needs a man of wisdom. First Corinthians six five talks about this. You should have at least one, and you probably have more than one. If if you're a congregation that's been under teaching for some time, you should have several. 1 Corinthians 6, in the event that there's uh, somebody here this morning or listening on MP3 or whatever, or hearing this message down the road 20 years from now, if you are a born-again believer and you fear the Lord and you reverence the Bible, this is a chapter that says you can't sue us, (laughs) okay? You don't sue churches, you don't sue pastors, you don't sue fellow believers. Don't take one another to court. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? This is a how dare you message. And he uses that same term, how dare you? How do you dare go before an unrighteous judge? How do you stand before a secular court? And why don't you bring your case to the body of Christ, to the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? God is suiting us to rule this planet. So in the meantime, we ought to handle our own business. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? You know, do you think you could take a Supreme Court justice, you know, take Clarence Thomas and bring him and uh, put him on a bench and allow him uh, to sit for an afternoon in small claims court or something and he can listen to a couple of neighbors talk about uh, the dog that, that ruined the petunias or something? And in a small claims court... I believe that Clarence Thomas would be adequate to the task. I believe that he has the legal mind and the acumen to, you know, being a Supreme Court justice, to sit on a lower court, to sit on a, on a, uh, uh, you know, a small claims court or something, okay? Where you could adjudicate a teen court in a high school and some kind of a thing that they set up there. And, and that's, the, that's the kind of ridiculous analogy Paul's using here. He says, we're going to rule this world. We ought to be able to handle our own business. We can constitute our own court, our own tribunal. Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, there are law courts dealing with biological issues, bios life. Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? No account. They have no standing, if you will. They have no credentials to, uh, to adjudicate between members of the body of Christ. That's not, they don't have the giftedness, the ministry calling, the, the effects. They are of this world. We are not. They are of no account in the church. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you 
one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. And so these things get adjudicated. You, you find that you submit to the arbitration, you submit to the wisdom of a older, an elder in the church, an older man, an older woman. If you're dealing with two women, maybe you would have an older woman. But in this case, it's an older man, a man of wisdom. And you say, look, here's a believer. He's grounded in doctrine. He has the mind of Christ. His eyes are fixed on the Lord. Let's, uh, let's see what he has to say. <laughs> he might have some uh, information for us. Instead, what the Corinthians were doing was they were going to court. A brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then it is already a defeat for you. You lost before the judge even hears the case. It is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That in the spiritual realm of things you are much better to be wronged, to be defrauded, to be stolen from. And and don't even take it to a secular court. Just accept the the secular loss so that you don't diminish the name of Christ and and drag His name through a secular court. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Is an offense against Jesus Christ to drag your brother into court. See? And there it is. And so, in a lot of cases then, folks look at this unnamed, unknown, uh, true companion, as it were, and they think, okay, this guy's just a 1 Corinthians 6-5 kind of guy. He's an older man of wisdom. He'll be able to help. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women. And I used to think that was the case, but I started to think, well, wait a minute. Why leave this guy anonymous? Of all the people to not leave anonymous, it'd be this guy. You know, if, if you're not going to leave Yodi and Syneke anonymous, you know, if you're not going to call out the guy by name, uh, the, the women, you're going to call the two women out by name that need to get along... Why not, why not name this guy? Why leave it as true companion? And so I think the, the adjective true we can leave uh, as an adjective, and uh, he is the truly named Sysagos. If in fact that's a proper name, then it's truly named. It's a great name to have because this is the guy, and what Sysagos actually means, uh, this is the guy that applies the yoke. This is the guy that will yoke uh, a yoke of oxen together. This, you know, when we're told not to be unequally yoked, uh, when we're told when Jesus tells us to take his yoke, uh, up, that's the, the zugas, that's the, that's the term here. And so we are yoked to Jesus Christ. We're not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. If we're going to be like-minded, if we're going to be harmonious, uh, we can be yoked together as, uh, as uh, fellow ministers of the, of the gospel, servants of the Lord. And so uh, somebody that can put two people together in a yoke is, uh, is, is a good guy to have around. Uh, if, if, uh, you know, if their personalities are drifting apart, then you know, get rid of the personalities and just have the mind of Christ. Be like-minded with, uh, with Jesus Christ. And uh, this is a guy that can yoke these people together. So Sisygus. And if that's the case, then now we have a second example where Paul uses a play on words with a person's name. Paul is known for this. He does this with Onesimus in Philemon chapter 11. Are you familiar with that? Philemon chapter 11. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. And in Philemon, he's writing about a runaway slave named Onesimus. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. See, he was a runaway slave. He was an unbeliever and he defrauded Philemon and he probably stole from Philemon to make his escape. 
either uh, fleeing all the way to Rome or more likely fleeing to Ephesus. And uh, this being an Ephesian imprisonment here, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So he runs away to either Rome or Ephesus, whichever you prefer. Ephesus is more believable, running from Colossae. And, uh, and he finds himself uh, face-to-face with the Apostle Paul and he gets saved, okay? And so now that he's saved, Paul is going to send him back to his slave master. Who could have him crucified, by the way? A runaway slave could be crucified under Roman law. Uh, and Paul doesn't tell Philemon what to do. Leaves it in his own um, frame of reference, in his own wisdom. So whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And that's a play on words because the name Onesimus means useful. And he's, now he really is useful. He was not aptly named before. You know, a guy named useful that runs away is of no use to you. But a guy that comes back, who's going to be a better slave than he ever was because now he's a believer, now he's serving as unto the Lord, he's going to be far more useful. So I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. He said, I could use somebody to minister to me. It's, you know, there's things that need to get done, and when you're in jail, they don't get done. And Onesimus could be that guy. Eventually it'll be Epaphroditus who'll be that guy. Epaphroditus will come from Philippi and he'll be that guy. He'll be the minister to Paul's needs. It goes on to say, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. The plan of God centers on free will, always, never compulsion. And even compulsion by way of ignorance is still compulsion. <laughs> if To keep somebody in the dark so that they accidentally do the right thing, that's not the will of God. You've got to let them know the truth so they can volitionally get on board and glorify Jesus Christ in everything that's done. Then he speculates, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. There's a sanctified speculation that can happen if you don't know the answer, but you can imagine maybe this is how it works. Perhaps he was separated for you for a little while that you could have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You're getting your slave back, but now he's a brother, and now he's going to serve you harder than ever before. He'll be the best slave you owe now, because he's in the Word of God, he loves Jesus Christ. Anyway, we don't know, but he says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. And all the doctrine of substitution that we can teach, uh, the kinsman redeemer related to that, comes out here in the book of Philemon. All right, so we don't know. It may be uh, if, in fact, we take Sisygos as a proper name, that this is now the second uh, occasion in which Paul uh, takes a person's name and uses a play on words with that name, that he is the truly named Sisygos. He is the truly named uh, yoke, yoker that puts believers in yokes, okay? Not a joker, but a yoker that puts believers in, uh, in yokes. Um, and really, it's curious to me, read the commentaries, read the journals, everybody wants to say that this is a proper name. They, they dearly want to say this is a proper name, but they stop and say we really can't. The reason why is because Zizagos is not known today to us. Uh, Zizagos is not known as a personal name in ancient Greek literature or inscriptions. They just, it's not found anywhere. It's not found in any drama, it's not found in any play, it's not found in any, uh, in any literature 
or even any graffiti. Uh, they've gone around and they've, they've transcribed graffiti all over, the, all over the place. Every time archaeology finds graffiti scrolled somewhere, they record that. So it's not known as a personal name. However, there are several similar names that use the sin and sim compound prefix like syndrama, semakos, and phronase. And so the idea of sizugas is not out of the question. It is not an unthinkable idea. And uh, I have no problem accepting it as a proper name. All right. So Paul asked Syzygos, the... the uh, appropriately named Zizigus, the truly named Zizigus, to help uh, Yodia and Syneche to uh, adjust their thinking, to give them the attitude adjustment they need. Background now under point F. Yodia and Syneche were veterans. They were veteran struggle sharers with Paul. When we teach the doctrine of the Christian struggle, it's called agonology. It's called agonology. It's the agony of the struggle. Sometimes we have agonizomai terminology or we have athleto terminology that both refer to the struggle. This here is the athleto terminology with soon athleto. Uh, together with Paul, Clement, and the rest of Paul's fellow workers. And uh, he doesn't name the rest, he just calls them the rest, the hoi lapoi, the, the rest. But he does name Clement. Clement gets uh, the billing on this for whatever reason he was significant. We don't know. We don't know, but the Philippians did. Obviously, uh, they would respond to this, and Yodi and Syneche would respond to this. Uh, the verb is soon athleo, S-U-N-A-T-H-L-E-O. And of course, we get athletics, uh, an athletic competition. Anything that's athletic, uh, when we try to, we argue about what's a sport and what's not a sport. Uh, but if it, is a, uh, if it is a competition where some are better than others and there's a metric whereby that is adjudicated, you know, they run faster, they get there first, they win the race, whatever the case, okay? Boxing, the, the, you know, the other guy's laying there unconscious, so the guy that did it to him is the winner. There's a, there's a metric. It's a competition. But if it's a combined competition... Right? Like a relay, for example. Now you've got four runners and they've got to hand that baton off and they can't drop the baton or they've got to pick it up if they do, but by then they've lost because they're way too far behind. The idea that you are cooperating together in this struggle, in this endeavor, and that builds a, uh, a camaraderie on your, on your team, you know, from swimming to running to whatever else. And so they're fellow athletes in the gospel athletic competition. And uh, this is what we see here, all right? Soon athleo. The verb soon athleo is used twice here and back in chapter 1 and verse 27, you might remember. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together. That's soon athleo. Striving together. Teammates. Teammates for the faith of the gospel. Teammates for the faith of the gospel. And so, what a parallel. That's exactly what we're dealing with here in chapter 4. We have the stand firm imperative like we had in one, and now we have Yodi and Seneki who uh, used to be fellow strivers in the gospel. They're not fellow strivers in the gospel anymore. 
Now, uh, you know, what, what causes you to take yourself apart and, and think that we're not on the same team anymore? Wait a minute. I thought we were on the same team. You know, are you preaching a different gospel? What are you doing? And so I, I really think that expression in 127 helps to define everything we have to explain in 4.3. That idea of fellow athletes, fellow uh, workers, fellow struggle sharers in the gospel. It is a compound from athleo. If you want to do a word study on athleo, you can, A-T-H-L-E-O, uh, like 2 Timothy 2.5. Uh, you know, we struggle. I forget what 2 Timothy 2.5 says. Um, if anyone athletos, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. You can be disqualified as an athlete if you get caught cheating. And so uh, that's athleto. We also have athlesis, a term for conflict in Hebrews 10.32. Conflicts don't have to be military conflicts. They could be sporting conflicts. And the term athlesis is used in that aspect. Hebrews 10.32 Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, a great athlesis of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. That's what it's about. We're sharing with one another's sufferings. We're not looking at what a sister goes through and going, whew, glad that's not me. No, that is me. Because all sufferings, you know, we, we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So this team sport is the faith of the gospel. Te piste tu euangeliu, the faith of the gospel. That's the team sport. We're all on the same team. We all should be fellow athletes together in the team sport of the gospel, the faith of the gospel. And this is what they were. And so it's curious to me that Paul doesn't leave them unnamed. It's curious to me that he doesn't leave it unmentioned, that he thinks, well, you know, yeah, they've got a track record. They used to bear a lot of fruit. I'm sure they'll work it out in the meantime. He doesn't just let it go. He doesn't assume that based on their past, what do we say, past performance does not guarantee future results? <laughs> How true that is, okay? Not only in the stock market, but how about in the Christian way of life? How about in performance in serving the Lord uh, as a fellow worker in the things of the Lord? And you know, you, you just see people suffer shipwreck with regard to their faith and you just, you shake your head because you remember back in the day when, man, they were on fire for truth. They never missed a prayer meeting. They never missed a Bible class. They were constantly, they were the first ones to sign up for a, for a ministry opportunity. And where are they now? And so uh, Paul doesn't just assume that, well, it'll work out because of their, their track record. He calls them on it and says, what are you doing now? Think the mind of Christ. And that's what he does here. All right, Clement. Who was Clement? Not likely Clement of Rome. Clement of Philippi. Clement is a very common name. It's a Roman name, actually. It's a Latin name that uh, gets brought into a, a Greek equivalent. Uh, Clement is a very common name, not likely the author of First Clement, despite uh, and not only Origen and Eusebius, it's actually found four different church fathers that all equated Clement of Philippi with Clement of Rome. And, uh, well, okay, uh, if they say so. Uh, I guess. They, they certainly lived a lot closer than I do to that century. 
But we're talking about the, the, the book of Philippians, and if you hold a Roman authorship, then that's 60, early 60s, 62. If you hold an Ephesian imprisonment, then that's mid-50s, late 50s, 56 or 57, all right? It's just it's, it's separated by distance and it's separated by decades. If it's the same climate, now it could be. I mean, it could be that he lived long enough and whatever. But he's an older man. He's described as somebody who in the past had been a fellow worker with Paul, along with others whose names are in the book of life. And if we take that book of life reference, um, which is also unusual, I, my sense is, could be wrong, but my sense is that, uh, that these guys aren't alive anymore. That Clement and the rest whose names are in the book of life actually have now passed on. They have joined the majority of the body of Christ that's no longer terrestrial, <laughs> right? The bulk of the bride is in heaven today. The bulk of the bride of Christ, the, the largest segment of the church is, is immortal with face-to-face with Jesus Christ. It's only our current generation that's still here in our, in our mortality. Anyway, uh, I accept uh, that Philipp- Philippi was, uh, the Philippian epistle was written from uh, an Ephesian imprisonment in 56 AD. And so if he's, if, he, if he's still alive in 95 AD when Clement writes First Clement, that's, uh, that's some 40 years later. And uh, not impossible, but uh, not certain. Anyway, Origen uh, passed that along as a legend. Eusebius uh, passed it along in his uh, church history. And uh, it's a very common name. We don't know who he is. And we'll just leave it at that. But then he talks about those whose names are written in the book of life. This is Paul's only reference to the book of life. The only time Paul ever references it. It is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, It's mentioned in uh, Exodus 32, in Psalm 40, Psalm 56, Psalm 69, Psalm 139. It's got a lot of Old Testament references. And Wednesday night when we come back, we're going we're to nail down all of these. Daniel mentions it in his uh, apocalyptic literature, in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, that gets fo- a follow-up in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, 13, 17, 20, 21. Mentioned repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus mentions it in Luke 10 and verse 20. Uh, the author of Hebrews references the, the, uh, the, this book in Hebrews 12.23. It's not always introduced with the same exact language. Sometimes it's just called your book or inscribed in heaven or written in heaven. Sometimes it's called the book of life. Sometimes it's called the Lamb's book of life. There are multiple books that are written in heaven. And so that's uh, actually a useful study to make sure as we look at each one to make sure we're looking at the same thing we think we're looking at elsewhere. I'll, I'll let it go this morning though with this. Significant here is yet another reminder that our citizenship is in heaven no matter what names are listed in the Roman colony's civic registry. That our names are in heaven no matter what names are listed in the Roman colony's civic registry. The Romans were amazing record keepers and still 2,000 years later we still have access to many of the, the first century records and it's staggering how comprehensive they were in, in tracking these things. Not only names but citizenship status. It's important to know if somebody's a citizen or not. And then within their citizenship what, what rank? Were they senatorial rank? Were they equestrian rank? Were they uh, private citizen rank? What was their rank? See, 
And, uh, and that, that had to do with your net worth. They would actually uh, have to measure your cash on hand and your, uh, your cash and property values and what was your net worth. Because if it fell below a certain mark of annual income, you were no longer qualified as a senator. You could get demoted down. You could lose your senatorial standing. And in fact, uh, some senators were, were fearful over that, that when they passed it to their children, if they had more than one or two sons, that things would be divided in such a way that those sons would lose senatorial standing based upon the income requirements at that level. And so they would, be, they would, ha- they would work very hard to, to maintain the, uh, the uh, economic standing so they didn't lose the political rank and the, uh, the votes that would, that would be cast. Because when they took their votes, there was, uh, the, the votes were conducted in a decreasing order. Senators voted first, and then the equestrians, and then the, there were five ranks, I think, total, all the way down to just free men, one step above slaves at that point. But they got a vote. They got a vote, okay? And uh, usually their vote didn't matter because things were settled when the, when the senators cast their vote, assuming that they had sufficient votes for passage was the, uh, the case there. Anyway, the Romans were marvelous at this, and their civic registry would have been significant. And it goes well, I think, with a statement made in 320 that our citizenship is in heaven, that uh, Paul is reminding this uh, group of believers in a Roman colony that uh, their, their political uh, privileges and rights as Roman citizens is nothing compared to being uh, of the royal family of God, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, uh, such as we have in the body of Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we could be there today. That trumpet can sound today, and we're going to launch out of here, and, uh, and there we go. All right. So Wednesday night, come back to this, and then we'll go to the seven imperatives of how to. How do I stand firm in the Lord? Well, start with rejoicing and uh, be anxious for nothing and develop your prayer life and then lock your thinking on Jesus Christ and whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. So we got verses four through nine with seven imperatives and uh, rejoicing is two of them. Okay, <laughs> so we'll uh, it's the first two, by the way. You don't even get to imperative number three until you uh, rejoice twice in, uh, in verse four. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, that uh, we can study a little here, a little there. We can piece together information best we can. And then we satisfy ourselves with the, the recognition that we don't know more. If it was important for us to know more, you would have told us more. And uh, whatever the case of Iodia and Seneca, we, we know very little. We don't have to know a lot other than to know that two sisters can, uh, can stop getting along. And uh, if that's an issue, then it has to stop. They've got to start uh, developing the mind of Christ and start working together in the, uh, the faith of the gospel. So I pray that we would learn these lessons, and not just the women, but the men too, can have uh, personality glitches and can have little things here and there that cause a falling out. As it happened between Paul and Barnabas, they had a disagreement and they went their different ways. And uh, Father, we recognize this can happen. So uh, open our eyes when it's on the verge of happening so that we can repent, we can change our thinking, get back to the mind of Christ. So I thank you, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.